What did firms learn about their supply chains during COVID? How should firms prepare for any future disruptions? Are just-in-time inventory policies still appropriate? Welcome to There's a Better Way, where we sit down with faculty experts and business leaders to discuss problems we face in our world today. In this episode, Professor Yurian de Jong moderates a discussion with Professors Keely Croxton and John Gray around managing supply chains post-pandemic and how we can best prepare for future interruptions. This podcast was recorded during a live event and questions are presented throughout the conversation from audience members. What better faculty members to, to come talk with us on uh, supply chain, supply chain management, and uh, what we'd like to believe supply chain post-COVID, right? Maybe we're still sort of semi in COVID, um, but it, either way, I think we've all learned a lot already. And uh, as you could tell, uh, both Keely and John have been uh, doing a lot of research in this space as well. Uh, they're teaching a lot in this space and um, they're doing uh, several ex executive education programs as well, which we thought would make them an excellent fit for this, this hour here with us. So as I mentioned, we just have a couple of questions that I have that we have prepared. Um, and beyond that, uh, please feel free, audience uh, attendees, to, to pop in some questions here in the Q&A function as well. All right, so with, it, with that, let's just maybe, uh, Keely and John, kind of jump into it. Um, so maybe just from your perspective, um, you know, what do you think firms uh, have learned so far uh, about their own supply chains during COVID? And it's quite a broad question, I guess, but what do you think? I mean, what have we learned uh, through COVID as supply chains, as companies managing supply chains? Keely, do you want to go first? Sure. Um... You know, I think the short answer is that we learned that, uh, at least for a lot of companies, that our their supply chains weren't very robust. I think supply chains have been built over the course of the last couple of decades for cost and speed, and not necessarily for disruption. Um, COVID was a bit of a of a perfect storm um, in that for a lot of products, demand went up while supply became quite constrained. Um, all at a time when supply chains, I would say, are more global and lean probably than they've been in any time in our history. Um, and so just uncovered a lot of vulnerabilities. And while being lean and global have a lot of advantages, um, they also create brittle supply chains. And, and we saw that um, on a daily basis uh, over the last couple of years. So that's my short answer to a complex question. Yeah, sure that's for sure a complex question. And you mentioned a couple of things that I'm sure we'll get back to here. You mentioned lean, right? Well, uh, I'm sure several of our attendees are right now thinking we have been way too lean. Maybe we have to be less lean. Maybe we have to carry more inventory. I think we'll we'll get into all of those sorts of things here in a little bit. But uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, what do you think, John? What have so firms I learned about supply chains during or throughout COVID? Anything yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'll just add a couple of things. Yeah. So I think one thing is um, firms that maybe hadn't uh, invested in supply chain risk management programs, which were fairly well established before COVID, uh, learned the value of them. So things like mapping the supply chain, which Keely and I have been teaching uh, for, for many years, um, you know, so the lack of visibility in the supply chain and made it more difficult to respond to kind of the rolling uh, shutdowns and, and other issues that occurred during COVID. Um, and also maybe that... Um, you know the the value of relationships for critical for critical goods. I think there was some certainly a lot of anecdotes of companies, uh, you know, in in a supply constrained situation, uh, suppliers uh, maybe prioritizing companies that had been better buyers in the past. Um, and so I think that those are a couple of things to add to what Keely said. Right. Great. Um, 
Yeah, right. You mentioned maybe you're just sort of skipping around a little bit. Keely was talking about lean. You mentioned risk management. Um, maybe if, if that's okay, John, just sort of sticking with uh, with risk management, right? Is what what has changed there? You think, or what uh, what what should have changed, or what, what did we learn about our risk management? Did we not manage risk correctly? Was there a different risk than we anticipated? Uh, what do you think companies should have learned there? I'll go first on this one because Keely will probably have more to say. So if she goes first, I won't have anything left to say probably. <laughs> um, so I mean, I think that um, you know, as I said, um, you know, I think the risks were. Okay. I mean, the ability to predict this level of disruption or the expectation that this was in the in the distribution of, of possible disruptions that companies were going to face is probably unreasonable. I think, to be honest, um, when I've taught risk management um, really since for the last 10 or 15 years, you know, we list things like factory fires, uh, bankruptcies, uh, port, port strikes, um, other types of disruptions would be the key things that at least I was teaching. Um, during H1N1, we might, might have mentioned pandemic shutdowns, but it wasn't really necessarily top of mind and certainly not at the level that we um, realized. So I think it was it's unreasonable to expect companies to have kind of had plans in place for a pandemic of this magnitude. Um, but we, we did learn, um, you know, one of my favorite quotes from teaching risk management, I teach the Cisco case, which is one of the classic cases in supply chain risk management is the value of uh of things like buffering um you know and right. the quote is you know the lean people and the risk people could have intelligent conversations if you had a robust risk management program so cisco had a robust risk management program and would talk about things like you know maybe we need to add a little inventory there because we think there's a risk of disruption in that link of our supply chain and so there would be discussion okay well that inventory goes in the risk management budget so that the lean people are still mm -hmm. You know, delivering, you know, that the day-to-day -day inventory is still, um, even though it's the same inventory, you know, uh, but the day-to-day -day part is attributed to the day-to-day -day operation and the risk management budget um, covers the excess inventory that's put in in anticipation of a disruption. Um, so, you know, I, I'll go back to mapping, though. I think, I think really, you know, for all disruptions, having uh, an understanding of where suppliers, tier one, ideally tier two and beyond, which I know is very hard is huge and then also playbooks and general approaches uh in place for kind of unexpected disruption so you write in a good risk management program you write playbooks for things that you expect might happen like exactly what you're going to do but also general playbooks and a team of you know they call them volunteer firefighters um you know a team of people that can go leave their day jobs and focus on um dealing with the disruption all of that would have helped to have in place prior to COVID but you know, to, to, to expect our supply chains to have been ready to and deal with COVID to me is a little bit unreasonable given given the huge supply and demand um, disruptions. So I rambled for a while there, Keely, but I think I left you plenty to, to say, hopefully. Uh, yeah, I'll just add a couple of thoughts. I, I, um, I think that the fundamentals of risk management haven't changed. It's still about um, assessing vulnerabilities and building capabilities. <clears throat> and so um, that is... Again, you know, to the points that we made earlier and that John just made, we companies learn the importance of that for sure. Um, but uh, but those fundamentals haven't changed. I think our understanding of the vulnerabilities did change. Um, I, there's a, a chart that came out uh, in early 2020 from the World Economic Forum, and it was mapping risks. And um, infectious disease was on the on the map, um, but it was 
uh, way off to the side as a uh, decreasing probability. And this was, I'm sure the chart was put together in late 2019, but clearly uh, the likelihood was was growing uh, by the day. Um, and yet it just wasn't, as John said, it wasn't really on folks' radar. Um, and, and to his point, maybe it shouldn't have been because it was so off the charts that um, it's not something we could really have prepared for. At the same time, I think that what a lot of companies have relied on is traditional risk management strategies, which is trying to figure out, okay, what are those things that could happen, right? The, the, the fires, the, the storms, um, and coming up with a plan to deal with those known risks. I think a lot of companies have gotten really good at that. And, and we learned, obviously, that some hadn't, um, but uh, but those those that did put those um, those plans in place for the known risks have benefited from that. But I think um, there's a difference between that those risk management strategies and building resilience. And building resilience is more about planning for those unknowns as well. Um, and um, so to me, a, a resilient strategy is building capabilities that work no matter what, what the event is. Um, and that comes not from focusing on particular events, but but looking kind of more broadly. Um, and I think uh, I agree with John. No one no one should have been um, prepared for for the effects of COVID because it would have been too costly and, and just wouldn't have made business sense uh, to be prepared for something so drastic. <clears throat> uh, but at the same time, they companies could have built capabilities that would have helped them respond better and and faster. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that's really interesting uh, from both of you, actually. So, it's, John, what I'm hearing you say is, um, you know, there, there's inventory management, there's risk management, and then it's sort of risk management and inventory management coming together, uh, as opposed to just saying, you know, we have to carry more inventory in all of, in all of our SKUs across the board, so to speak. Uh, we have to be smart where where we where we do that essentially, right? Um, and you you said it more eloquently than I did, and uh, you know, more elaborately in a good way. Uh, but yeah, thank you. That that's really good. So some questions maybe are coming are starting to pop up here. Uh, one that the three of us had sort of talked about here as well. Uh, Kevin is talking here about the uh, collaboration between companies and the government. Um, and we uh, ourselves, the three of us, talked a little bit about uh, government as well, right? Uh, Kevin is saying. You know, during the health uh, emergency, uh, there was increased collaboration, uh, both in supplying and in insights between companies and the government. Uh, do we think that's going to continue after the pandemic? Um, and, you know, is there a role for the government, I guess, to play? That's what the three of us have talked about as well. Is there a role for the government to play in terms of setting policy, setting mandates, perhaps? Um, or is there maybe another incentive for, for such a collaboration? What do you guys think? All right, I'm going to take the start on this one because John's going to have uh, a lot more to say. I think this is really his area, but I'll, but I'll just kind of uh, make a brief um, a brief statement. I think when I look at um, the solutions, so I think of it as like a three by three matrix. To me, there were three problems. There are three problems. One, our, our um, supply chains are built for speed and, and cost and not for, for disruptions. Um, supply went, uh, so we have these lean and, and um, global supply chains, we had uh, a major disruption to supply 
and demand for a lot of products um, had drastic changes, either up or down. So those are kind of three problems. And I see three opportunities or three players that can affect that. Companies can do things. Um, the government can do things. And I would argue that we as consumers may need to, to do some things. Um, and so in that government space, I think there are certainly things that the government can do to encourage companies to be more um, resilient. I think there's things they can do to um, reduce some of the supply constraints. I mean, one of the big issues we faced over the last year plus has been our ports. Um, and government, our government could invest in, in better port infrastructure, um, better um, customs processes, right, to, to speed, speed things up. So I think there's things they can do to help our supply constraints. And they they do things uh, you know all the time to in change our demand patterns. Um, we're seeing that right now with with um, with interest rates, right? They're adjusting right. interest rates in hopes of of tabling some of our our demand. Um, so, kind of broadly speaking, I think there's um, incentives and policy changes that can happen across those three categories. Um, and so, to me, that's that. John's been doing this work for a while, but to me, that was a bit of my big aha through the last couple of years. Um, I had spent a lot of time thinking about what companies can do to be more resilient and hadn't really thought of the role of government. Um, and I think it's a pretty interesting space now. Right. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah. What do you think, John? You know, I mean, industrial <clears throat> policy has kind of been a bad word um, in the U.S. for a while, um, but for the last few years and really spurred by COVID, um, but also the current administration, um, industrial policy is alive and well. And um, there, the, the Biden administration put forth in June of 2020, a uh, 2021, sorry, a um, report on supply chains, on four supply chains, uh, pharmaceuticals, critical materials, uh, semiconductors, and batteries, I believe. Or, um, and in those laid out Consider those critical and in those laid out actions to encourage uh, domestic production, to encourage resilience. Um, and that work is being done. Um, and it's, it's, I think I'm referring only to publicly available information about that. But I mean, the certainly thing, you know, for, for <clears throat> a, an incident of the magnitude of COVID, you know, a, a strategic national stockpile of, of health, um, of things needed during a pandemic uh, makes a little bit more sense in aggregate than expecting every company to prepare uh, for, for, at that level. There also is uh, work to try to, um, I guess, encourage domestic production in, in, in smart ways, uh, maybe by making it a little bit more difficult to produce in low cost locations, um, some direct incentives as we've seen with the CHIPS Act. Um, and so certainly um, that's not really directly related to pandemic, I guess, although indirectly chips are in everything. Um, so that there is a lot of, um, I think there are a lot of spaces where just stepping back, it makes more sense for the government to invest in in resilience um, directly through things like stockpile or indirectly through encouraging um, uh, domestic supply chains, which clearly aren't always resilient, right? The baby food incident, 98% uh, domestic supply chain um, shows that you know domestic does not equal resilience. Um, but um, in cases where critical materials are only being produced in in countries like China or uh, or, or India, um, yeah, there is some reason to believe that diversifying that and having some domestic production would be a good idea. And so, to the extent the government can incent that, 
um, I think makes sense as well. So, I mean, if you're in an industry that uh, one of those four industries or an industry that um, the government seems to feel is critical, I think it's certainly worth reading up on what they're doing. And, and, and um, you know, the, I will say that, you know, when the government puts out um, comments for policies, uh, they are read. <laughs> um, people read them. People look at them. Um, you know, the people in 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 trying to write these policies do want to are very mindful of um, encouraging private sector uh, investment. Want the private sector to input, and so I think it's definitely something that will continue. Um, I think there was a realization that maybe in, in, even before the pandemic, when the Made in China 2025 initiative came out, um, there was concern that. Oh my gosh, China has all these plans to invest in all these critical industries, and and we don't. Uh, that was actually Marco Rubio who who mm. raised that concern. So um, it's um, and then the pandemic kind of elevated concern about the ability to, I guess, you know, take care of the citizens if need be um, in that particular situation. So a lot more that could be said there, but I'll stop. Yeah, no, that's all very interesting. John, would you mind repeating those? You mentioned, I think, four categories, four industries, right? I think you mentioned it, and I, I, I can't recall it. Maybe the rest of the audience can. I, I hope I got them. I hope I got them right. Pharmaceuticals, um, batteries, um, critical minerals, and semiconductors. I believe are the four right. that were in the June 2020, 2020 report. Uh, June 2020, 2021. Why can I not say that? Report um, from the administration. So it was a, it was a follow up to the hundred day report on it was the it was the full report on the hundred day demand that we need to have these um, uh, an analysis of the resilience of these industries. Right. Yep. So maybe just a quick follow up, uh, John. Without you know, uh, I'm not sure to what extent you were able to share this, but uh, the items that you just mentioned, this is these are things that you and the rest of the team, um, whatever this team looks like, working with the White House are working on that actively, or, and I'm not sure to, to what extent you're able to. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of that, people, but... yeah, and there's, I'm still figuring it all out. But yes, the people are actively trying to figure out how to make those supply chains more resilient um, right. through through policy. And, and obviously, legislation has passed for chips um, yeah. and, 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 and others. So, and I guess with the Inflation Reduction Act, there was some legislation that included investment in um, battery and electric vehicles. Uh, not not too much has formally been done. Well, I shouldn't say that. Um, there hasn't been some big um, legislation with healthcare supply chains yet. But right. It's been part of some of the things. So. Great. Very interesting. And it's, you know, that kind of goes back to what you both said. There's not individual companies uh, could not have possibly been prepared for what we all went through. Right. So it's good to see that, uh, you know, government is stepping in and, and acting where, uh, you know, where individual companies uh, have not been able to, from my perspective. Uh, so Kevin also mentioned mandates. You know, is there anything going on in terms of mandates? Can we? Should the government? Is anything like that going on? Do, you, do either of you know? Or is there another incentive for collaboration? Beyond that, I think we've answered that question. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know the answer. I, I mean, you know, mandates are always tricky, um, mm -hmm. particularly uh, in, a, in a capitalist uh, society, capitalist economy. Yeah. Um, so I think incentives are generally preferred um but i don't know and, and i think some of those are happening but i don't know the details somewhere in one of the past acts there is a 
is a buy PPE in America or make PPE in America um, mandate. Um, it has a exception <laughs> clause, um, but there, there's, there's definitely there's that. There's some there's some buy America mandates mainly for government spending okay. um, uh, in government contracts in some of the stuff that's been passed. But I I don't know exactly what I know. I do remember buy PPE in America is, is somewhere in one of the acts. I think the Inflation Reduction Act. Right. So there's some in there, but like Keely right. said, that's not really the preferred approach the preferred approach is to make it you know level the playing field is one way yeah. to phrase it you know make make it economically feasible um to produce domestically or source from somewhere that uh, or diversify the supply chain yeah all right good wonderful thank you both um so let's maybe uh, switch some gears here and leave the uh, uh the government dimension so to speak here for for a bit some other questions are coming in. One is, you know, and, and Keely, you started talking about this in your intro uh, about lean and about JIT, perhaps, if you will. And uh, Ayush, for example, is talking about that here. Uh, and we talked about that as a group as well. Um, you know, how about lean? How about JIT? Have we learned anything there? Were we too lean? Um, and Ayush specifically is saying here for companies who manage their inventory using really, you know, JIT. Um, during the the supply chain disruption, uh, is there a learning from this? Is there a learning from for us, perhaps? Um, should companies look at JIT differently? Uh, are we done with JIT? Are we done with lean? What do you both think? I heard a quote: "The death of JIT has been uh, greatly exaggerated." <laughs> I think that uh, um, it maybe needs to be kind of you know. Um, adjusted. Um, but the fact of the matter is that 99.9% .9 of the time, uh, it works well, and it's low cost, um, and uh, allows companies to be to be responsive. Um, and so I think uh, to do something that that doesn't make sense 99.9% .9 of the time, and only makes sense, you know, the, the 0.1 um, would would be uh, senseless. So I think that um, the JIT is certainly not dead, um, and being lean is is I think still going to be the the mo for for a lot of organizations. Um, but I remember reading an article after the tsunami in that 2011 um, that Toyota, who I think you know I think of as the grandfather of of lean, um, Toyota was adding inventory uh, to their system. Were they getting rid of? JIT and the lean um, initiatives, absolutely not, but they were kind of strategically placing inventory in their supply chain. And so I think to me, that's probably the right strategy. Um, also finding other ways to be um, more resilient and more um, agile uh, in that 0.1% um, makes sense, but I, I don't think adding a whole lot more inventory is probably the right, the right answer. All right. John, what do you think? John, what do you think? I'll, I'll just agree. I mean, I think I think that um, <clears throat> if you know, I, I think there's a little bit of a recency bias often, and I think if companies go a little too far with just in case instead of just in time, um, you know, the smart smart money might be on companies that kind of go a little bit back to efficient supply chains with better mapping, um, you know, better. Um, pivoting capabilities, but not necessarily building a lot of um, 
what lean people would call waste, although supply chain risk management people would call buffer. <laughs> uh, um, so I mean, it's, it's it's difficult, but I do I do think there's you know, it, is this going to happen in the same way again without um, you know to what it, um, and and if it doesn't and you and you build up too much just in case, then um, are you then going to be the high cost supplier? And 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 so it's very difficult to manage. But I just am agreeing that lean is not dead. Um, Keely has a, a a great paper on building up capabilities uh, for the for the um, risks that you face. I mean, I think the idea is is to build up those kind of standby capabilities without making your whole supply chain fat. But hard hard to do. I mean, it's a lot easier for us to talk about than it is to implement. Yep. Yeah, I agree with both of you. Right. It's uh, it's easy to sit here with the three of us and talk about this. It's um, uh, but I also agree with the fact that it's it, it's not dead, right? I mean, it's boy, we're the operational excellence program, so of course it's not dead. But in all <laughs> in all seriousness, it's you know, I think from my perspective, the uh, the basics of inventory management and supply chain inventory management still uh, exist, right? Where uh, we have, um, without getting too techie here, uh, we have um, cycle inventory, which can be managed through uh, through JIT. Um, and beyond that, we have our safety stock and safety stock per definition is there to, you know, to, to mitigate risk, I guess, right? And to deal with uncertainties. Uh, so I guess managing our uncertainties and our risk better will perhaps uh, lead to a little bit more carrying a little bit more safety stuff where appropriate as john mentioned a little bit ago you know as we're uh, working together with our risk management folks uh we're mitigating risk through perhaps here and there a little bit more safety stock uh but in a uh, smart kind of way right um but again as you both said it's easier for us to talk about it here than to to do it it can be really challenging especially as you are larger you're, you're carrying more uh more skews so to speak right um good any any other uh, thoughts on lean i think we kind of uh covered that part right we have a number of other uh questions popping in uh and also a couple other questions that we have prepared but um let's just sort of look at the audience the attendee attendees questions here uh so Yi is talking about a topic that the three of us discussed as well about you know, labor uh, shortages, uh, talent management. What have we What have we learned there? Uh, what is you know, what can we do do about that going forward? Uh, is there perhaps a policy uh, in place there that can help with that? What, what, what do you all think about that, Keely and John? Any thoughts? Certainly not my area of expertise, so um, I'll throw out a couple thoughts. But um, but I know there's a lot more to be be said in this area. Um, you know, I think the great resignation, the silent quits have all kind of highlighted the importance of um, the employee experience um, and certainly um, pay and benefits have come, come to the forefront um, as issues in terms of, you know, policy, I'd say um, to some extent we've learned, at least in, in this environment, that it doesn't matter too much what the government says minimum wages, <clears throat> excuse me, um, because if you can't get people to work for that, you're gonna have to pay them more. So um, so I think that the um, market dynamics are kind of you know taking care of um, the, the pay scale a bit, um, but, uh, but I think that um, we're, we're gonna have to get creative about finding um, a willing labor force. I think that 
some of that comes through paying benefits. Um, some of that comes through maybe, you know, finding more opportunities for part-time employment. I mean, I think about, um, you know, um, working moms that, you know, or maybe stay-at-home moms that would like to be working moms, but, you know, need a schedule that accommodates that. Um, there might be a labor force there that we could, um, you know, become, be, be more accommodating to. Um, I think the next generation, flexibility and scheduling and, you know, being able to work from home and all those things are becoming um, kind of uh, maybe expected. Um, and so we're going to have to we're going to have to deal with those those changes and and companies are going to have to figure out ways to to make that happen because um as we've been seeing uh employees will just kind of you know walk away from circumstances that they're not um that they're not happy with um but i also think that will will stabilize as well i don't necessarily think that's going to um continue to be the the mo of of employees i don't think it can we all need jobs um so I, I think there there's um there's opportunities there I'm not sure if it's if we need government policy to make those things happen or we just need management to become more open and um and more creative right Thank you. You know, also not my area of expertise but um you know there is some there are some efforts to try to implement you know Training programs at community colleges and things like that to to build up the. I mean, there 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 are more job openings than there are unemployed, um, and so it's a mismatch of talent with talent or willingness with uh, the openings. Um, and I, I again, not my area of expertise, but so there's efforts to try to create um, training to try to get the skills that we need uh, to the to the people that uh, that want jobs. And I do I agree with Keely though. I think the when the economy settles. Um, some of this will also settle. Uh, the, the employees are in very, uh, workers are in very powerful positions right now just because of all the openings. Um, but I think that, that that will change naturally. Right. Good. Yeah. Well, that's another big topic, isn't it? Um, yeah. And neither of us are experts in it. So, so <laughs> I'm not either. It's a, that's just a, that, that's a, a tough one, I guess, that we can all agree on. Um, well, speaking of tough ones, let me let me throw you another curveball here. Maybe you'll, you're seeing it in the chat. Uh, Christopher here is talking about. Um, it was mentioned by three, uh, the three by three, I guess, Keely, that you sort of talked about. So uh, here it comes uh, considering influences on the supply chain, right? The government company, uh, companies, the consumer, right? Uh, Christopher here is talking about unions and non-state actors. Um, what about the role of unions? Speaking of, uh, you know, big topics and curveballs and so on. Can we say anything intelligent there? How about the role of unions? Um, is there something that unions, a way that unions could play a role here? Is there something in a way that they're contributing, that they're not contributing? What are some thoughts here? Um, top of your mind. John, you got something on that one? Yeah, I mean, I got to be careful here. Um, so I'm definitely speaking as myself here. Um, I think unions could play a role in the training um, and the skill development. I think that's <clears throat> a value that that unions can bring. Um, you know, I would, but I, um, I think unions um, could could be help more helpful if they could also uh, implement kind of well established. Uh, work rules, pay for performance, um, 
you know, things like that, that, that lead to, to, to more effective, um, operations. Um, so I don't, I think, I think unions, that biggest positive role can be what we just talked about in terms of encouraging certification and training and getting, getting us more plumbers and electricians and technical people that can do the work that needs to be done. If we're really going to build this $20 billion plant in Columbus, Ohio, um, you know, are we going to have the labor to do it? Um, are we going to have the workers to do it? I think unions could help there. Um, but I think there's, there, it would be helpful. It could be more helpful if there were some other things that changed. Just be that vague, uh, speaking as <laughs> entirely as myself. So, gotcha. No, no, that's good. Yeah, and, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, the. Um, ahead, I, just, I, I wish my uh, I could have my brother on the line. He's a labor and human resources expert, so I'm, I'm sure he'd have some things to add. Um, I think, uh, and I don't know um, which non-state actors. Um, Christopher was was thinking about. I think, I mean, if you think of um, academia as a uh, one example, um, as John's pointed out, I think uh, education and training is something that uh, that we can certainly play a role in. Both, you know, at the um, at the uh, you know core skills level, the John mentioned you know, electricians and the plumbing plumbers um, on the floor, shop workers, and then. Uh, you know the role that we play in man in trying to train future future managers. Um, we can certainly be um, training uh, our students to think more robustly about about supply chains and and all of the things that we've been we've been talking about. We should be having we need to be having these discussions in the classroom as well. And I I think we are. Um, and hopefully that's rounding out their their perspective in good ways. Right. Good. Very good. All right, let's 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 switch gears again a little bit here as well, because I, I think we had talked about this one topic here that I think would be interesting to to kind of explore a little bit as well. Speaking of, you know, maybe geo geopolitical unrest, right? Uh, just sort of this word global order has, has been brought up, maybe perhaps as well. Um, some issues in the, in the in the Far East, perhaps. Uh, what's going on there? Do, do we want to talk about that a little bit, John or Keeley? Um, what do you think? What is that going to mean for global supply chains? What does that mean for companies in the U.S.? Um, what do you want to say about that? I mean, I, I think it's it's led to more uh, desire, I guess, uh, to kind of the new term is friendshore. You know, not to not not reshore or nearshore necessarily, but to be sourcing critical supplies as critical parts of the supply chain from countries that we believe will not, um, you know, get to the point where they're expropriating um, goods and preventing shipping of critical materials or, or disrupting supply chains. There's, we are, but to be clear, we are still, if you look at the numbers, it hasn't changed too much at all, still importing billions and billions and billions of goods from China. And I don't see that changing anytime soon, um, unless, you know, there actually is a um, you know a, a, a war, um, which unfortunately seems, I think, still somewhat unlikely. But I mean, it's, it it doesn't seem totally out of the question. Um, so there's a lot of talk about trying to decouple, um, and there is a lot. There is some movement and announcements, but the numbers are still huge. And the infrastructure. There's a great article in the journal about uh, 
that said something like, my customers want me to leave China. Here's why it's so hard or something like that. And um, talks about the, the, the really strong uh, capabilities and infrastructure and um, suppliers and, and so on that would have to be reproduced elsewhere to really decouple. Um, so it's 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 being talked about a lot. Uh, it will take, a, barring a, a, a tragic incident, I think it's going to take a, a long time, if ever, to um, fully decouple. Um, but it's certainly driving people to think about um, moving more of their supply away from places that there's concern are um, won't be won't be friendly um, in the future and may may present a risk of again expropriation or or preventing shipment of uh, of goods of critical goods. Right. Yeah, you're saying it's it, 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 that is so hard, right? It's. Um especially for, if we're importing, you know, finished goods, which in most cases we do, uh, it's, you know, tier one, tier two, tier three uh, suppliers. And so it, it would mean moving the entire supply chain with all the tiers there as well, right? That, yeah. I guess that's one and, part. That and also we're, and we're, in, we're already in, in an inflationary environment. Um, right. And, you know, there's a reason <laughs> that so many things are produced um, in China. Um, and it, right. it's, it's a lot cheaper, especially with the, the scale and efficiencies that have been developed over there through time. So it would be you know, a sudden and aggressive movement of things from China to any other French shore that I can think of, unless maybe, maybe we, we call Vietnam or places like that, uh, safe to source from because they are actually cheaper, but also right. dealing with capacity issues. Cause a lot of people have been moving to Vietnam since the tariffs. Um, there's, um, you know, talk about inflation, you know, if we, if we move a bunch of stuff quickly, that would put a lot of pressure on prices as well. And right. you know, again, back to the earlier point, where are we going to find the workers <laughs> and the things to, to, to do all of this? So um, it's a little bit unrealistic to, to move a bunch of stuff quickly, uh, given the inflationary and talent shortage environment here, as well as just the, cap you know, I think the capabilities could be developed, but I mean, they would take some time to develop in some of these industries. Right. Gilead, yeah, I think it's going to have to be a, a slow move. And I, and I think, you know, a lot of companies have moved from um, China to other parts of Asia, even just for cost reasons, as the um, standard of living and costs have gone up, uh, labor costs have gone up in China. They've um, looked to Vietnam and Malaysia and um, other parts of, of, uh, of Asia to um, find low cost. But to John's point, those those locations don't yet have the infrastructure that that China has. I mean, China has some of the most efficient ports um, in the world, and um, just as one example of that infrastructure. So uh, it's easy to say, um, yeah, let's let's move away, let's decouple, let's become less reliant. Uh, very hard to execute, but I do think there's more and more pressures and reasons um, for for companies. Uh, to think about it. I mean, there. yes, there's the um, geopolitical risk, but we also just came out of, you know, a lot of problems um, with our China sourcing just due to COVID, right? And the way that they shut down. Um, so uh, so we have a lot of examples of why it's risky. Um, I think there's, you know, environmental um, pressures that are starting to, you know, to have companies rethink their, um, their carbon footprints. Uh, you know, it's a it's a combination to me, it's a combination of things that maybe start to move the needle just a bit, but it's a huge needle to move. Right, right. 
Yeah, so <clears throat> Keely, you're kind of going to where uh, I was I was thinking about going with the next question, but you've mostly answered it. You know, if we talked first about, you know, call it the, the macro level, I guess, like, is the, yes, this is hard to do to move an entire supply chain. Uh, but if I'm a company, maybe some of the attendees here are on the call, and I'm considering, you know, uh, reshoring or nearshoring or some of the terms that John just talked about, um, how do I go about that making that decision as a company, right? We just now for, and I think there's maybe a little bit more to, to say about that. We talked about it as, you know, at, at sort of a national level, perhaps. But if I'm, you know, maybe a director or a VP of supply chain that may be listening in, and I'm, I've been considering that, um, how do I go about that? How do I make that decision? Should I nearshore? Should I reshore? Um, should I not? I mean, would we, answer that a little bit, but I wonder if we can say anything more about that. So I, I, I wrote a paper called Total Value Contribution, gonna, a new, a yeah, new approach to sourcing decisions. So, I mean, it's, just, it's, it's, and I'll be happy to put it in the chat if anybody, it's an open access paper, but I mean, it's, it's basically how, how that, um, you know, focusing on, on what value uh, the domestic sourcing would bring uh, to your customers in terms of shorter lead times, uh, lower risk, um, possibly that might lead to increased revenue or, or, a lower likelihood of losing revenue, um, focusing on that in the decision and seeing if that makes up or can make up for if anchoring on that value creation that you can do by reshoring can make up for um, the loss, the, the potential increased um, cost or lost profit, depending on whether you pass the increased cost onto the consumer. Um, we did, I did do a study on small and medium companies reshoring, and this was uh, several years ago, but what we found was, um, you know, when they had offshored, it had been uh, an offshore outsourcing decision, largely cost-focused, um, and it admitted by them uh, too little attention to the increased risks and um, potential revenue implications. Now, these are companies that then chose to reshore. So it was a sample of companies that offshored and obviously failed in offshoring and decided to come back, um, not after the pandemic, just during normal times. Um, but what... Um, and so I guess I guess I'll I'll put the total value contribution paper in the chat. Just to thank you for giving me the opportunity to to to, to right. plug that. It's just a way to think about it. But I mean the the yeah, it's I mean it's such a tough decision. Um and and the problem is we I wish we could tell you, you know, what's the probability of of um China invading Taiwan and then having these problems up, but we can't, right? I mean, Keely and I don't know that. Um um, well, maybe Keeley does, but I certainly don't. Um, and so those are the kind of, you know, risks that you have to think about without really being able to assign exact probabilities. Um, and, and disruption risks, you can think about, you can think about, you know, what you've experienced, but, you know, what the risk of a port shot, you know, it can be thought through. Um, the idea is to think about the, the, the implications of some of these risks being realized and what are the magnitudes of those and then, you know, are they reasonable to happen or not? And then comparing those to the to the cost differences. But it's 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 the, the hardest part is is you know, is what are these risks? And, and I'd, I'd argue nobody really knows exactly what they are. Right. Yeah. What it's, I'm hearing you say is it's it's yes, it's about the risk, and yes, it's about the the cost implications, uh, savings, and additional cost perhaps of, of production, but definitely also the the increase in value maybe in another way or the yeah. increase in revenue as well, right? You may yeah, so thinking through the potential revenue. Shorter, quicker and so on. Right. Shorter lead times, more responsive um, changes, more customization, things that can be done maybe with the responsiveness and and, and being closer to customers right. are, might be able to make those up. And sometimes it can't. So then you, then you live, you know, I mean, if 
if you're well i'll stop i was gonna go on another tangent and it's 8 49 there's lots of other good questions so i'll stop there <laughs> that's right so. all right uh there we'll probably have time for another question or two and i'm looking in the chat here there's a question here on uh as america splits into the have and have nots are the concern that most supply chains are staffed by people who must be on site right we're, we're doing the work or maybe assembling maybe we're producing maybe we're uh you know uh, creating parts and components and so on while the new uh hybrid work at home workforce only benefits uh those not producing supplies um, i guess that's a good uh good good question good point are there concerns about that i guess there are right any any additional insights from uh, from you keely I'm, I, I'm hearing this a lot, so I think there's definitely concerns. I think as managers are trying to figure out what work schedules look like, um, I hear managers saying, well, you know, or um, people, uh, my friends being told by their managers, you have to be in the office because, you know, other people have to be in the office because they, they're they moving things, right? There's no option to work from home. So, um, so we all kind of got to uh, be there together. Um, other, other managers are coming to a different conclusion, which is okay. If, if you have to be there, you have to be there, but if you don't, then, you know, let's, let's work out a way to, to work from home. And, um, and I, I think it's a, I think it's a, <laughs> a big challenge right now to kind of figure out what that right answer is. I mean, you know, if we talk about what's fair. Um, is it fair that some people have to be in the office and others don't, um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm working from home right now um, because I can. And uh, there are times when I have to be in the office because I have to be in front of students. Um, right. So, uh, so yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is. I think, I think um, managers are wrestling with that a lot right now and trying to come up with something that makes everybody happy. And there's, there's probably nothing that makes everybody happy. All I'll say is I think we still want we still want manufacturing jobs in in the U.S. I think um, as as a society and those do require people to be at work, um, but I think we still want those jobs. And we want those opportunities um, for people. Right. Yeah, uh, good points. All right, let's see. Maybe we do one more question because I want to give you got you both the opportunity to talk a little bit about your uh, supply chain management program as well, which might be of interest of uh, you know a number of uh, folks on the call here. Um, let's see here. Gabrielle's asking two questions here. Uh, John, this may be going back to what you talked about a little bit ago. Uh, you talked about companies being able to pivot, you know, and have, I think we talked about, um, you know, building these, these capabilities. What kind of pivoting do we see companies needing to make or expecting to make? I think this is going back to and I think this is from a little bit before we talked about, uh, before we even talked about reshoring and so on. Um, yeah, other ways so of companies being able to pivot. What do you think? I'll probably take a couple and then I'll pass it on to Keely because again, I think her paper talks about uh, investing in capabilities to be able to do this. So by pivot, I, I simply meant being able to quickly adapt to a changing situation, whether that's a, a sudden demand increase or more likely what we're talking about, a sudden supply shock. Um, and so I, I think she meant, you know, obviously, you know, what are the buffers? Inventory, excess capacity are some buffers, but also having, and I think I already mentioned this, having the playbooks in place, <clears throat> pre-planning what you will do for an unknown um, supply shock, putting in place um, managers with training in how to deal with a disruption. 
which may you know, including how to communicate, how to communicate with customers, how to communicate with suppliers, how to communicate with Wall Street if you're a public company, um, and how how to make sure the information going out is is the same. How to deal with any any human issues in in a, in a disruption if it is a, a, a natural disaster or a factory fire or things like that. Um, again, I, I guess it's eight fifty three. So I'm, I, and I want to turn it over to Kelly. There is a body of knowledge. I have my slides in front of me. A supply chain of supply chain risk management. Um, and basically, you know, mapping the supply chain, knowing where the supply chain is, evaluating predictable risks, putting specific plans in place for those, and then having a, a general plan in place for what you will do for the unknown risk. <laughs> um, you know, what, what the general plan will be is, is, is what I was getting at there. Another uh, ability to pivot might be having some, uh, you know, maybe looking for places where you need to diversify, where, where that's not a panacea because, um, you know, when you have two suppliers, you've doubled your risk of experiencing some disruption. Uh, but as long as they're they have capacity to deal with it, you you are lowering the the impact of that disruption. Um, so, right. you know, mapping, looking for weaknesses, putting plans in place, and it's not just inventory and capacity buffers. It's 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 um, it's other things. And I will now officially turn it over to Gilly because she I'm sure has a few other things to add. Yeah, yeah I'll. I'll try and be brief. I think that um, all those things John said are examples of ways to be agile. Um, it, using technology to increase transparency um, can help. Um, other um, forms of technology can you know, play a role. 3D printing, um, things like that can help you be more agile. The other thing I'll point out that I think a lot of um, companies, managers, executives focus on when they're thinking about resilience is kind of the bounce back. Like how do we get back to normal? How do we pivot so that we're back to where we were in terms of you know our, our demand or our supply, depending on where the disruption was. Um, there's, I think, increasing attention, at least from academics on the, um, what we call bounce forward. So um, how do we, get how do we recover from a disruption to a place where we're better than we were and and maybe that's pivoting more not just in terms of short-term agility but actually pivoting our business model um making changes to adapt to you know a new environment and we saw a lot of companies doing that through through covid um where they had to change the way they did business um we particularly saw that in the retail space um and so I think that's kind of an interesting thing for companies to start thinking through is not just the bounce back, but how do we how do we try to pivot in, in ways that are kind of more long-term growth oriented. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information on Fisher programs, including the new Masters of Supply Chain Management, please visit fisher.osu.edu.